Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, a place dedicated to the discussion of Christian faith in 21st century life. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So join us as we endeavor to understand 21st century life through the lens of Christian faith. I'm your host, Alan Bevere, pastor, professor, author, and lover of Five Alarm Food. Come and seek with me. All right, good day to everybody. Welcome to the YouTube channel and podcast, Faith Seeking Understanding. I am Alan Bevere, your host. I am the self-appointed Anselm Chair of Podcast Theology and Culture at Faith Seeking Understanding University, where all seekers are welcome to ponder profound things free of charge. That's what we do here. And I'm glad to have conversation with my friend, Michael Cruz, who we've had a conversation before uh, on, on a video and podcast. Michael, good to see you. Thanks for the conversation. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, we should say that this is the first and what's going to be a monthly conversation on various subjects, particularly around perhaps economics and sociology and and uh, how to understand uh, our concurrent social situations and just ponder uh, how all Christianity might help us think about those things. So, uh, and I know we need to, you and I need to have one uh, conversation just on socialism. Um, yeah, right, yeah. Because we need to say something about that uh, in contradistinction to all the experts on social media. And then uh, also also a, 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 a session on capitalism. And I should say before anybody sends me any emails about uh, uh, me being a socialist, I and uh, Michael uh, like free markets. I need to say that. We, had, we are right. fans of free markets. Okay, now all of you socialists who are disappointed, I have to tell you, but, but listen with an open mind, you know, maybe we right. can have a good there conversation. Michael, so you live, so tell us a little bit about yourself. You live in Kansas City? Yes, live in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, my wife uh, and I have lived here for the same house for the past 30 years. Um, been involved in a number of different things over my life. I've worked for uh, a United Way and worked in the nonprofit world. I've also worked in a for-profit business, worked to uh, help starting a business inside an investment banking firm. And I've also been involved uh, at the, uh, as an ecclesiastical person in the Presbyterian Church USA, served on the Presbyterian Mission Agency Board for about a decade and been involved with a, a number of things there. And I've always had a very strong interest in the intersection between uh, faith and economics. And uh, so I'm looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. And one of the things that we're going to, by the way, this is a, this podcast, this monthly podcast series is going to be called Calmly Considered. You know, NPR has all things considered. We have calmly considered because we're just calm people most of the time. So we're going to have a discussion much. today on the economic, economics and the New Testament. And uh, then uh, we're going to go through, we're going to look at, I'm going to put for you video casters. I'm going to put it up on the screen here, uh, just so you can see the book cover. Uh, for those of you who are listening via podcast, I will uh, put the link to the book uh, on, in the in the podcast description, but there it is, and this is a new book by Peter Oakes, who has written extensively on issues of economics in the New Testament, and this is a brand new book, Empire Economics in the New Testament, and uh, Michael and I have both read it, and you've read you've read other things by Oakes, haven't you? I have seen some other things. In fact, I think chapter three is um, a reprint of an essay that he wrote in Engaging Economics, an, edit, yeah. an edited okay. collection from about 10 years ago. I think that's where I first became exposed to him, yeah. Okay, so we're gonna look at, so what we're gonna do is using Oak's book, we're gonna have conversation around uh, his three sections. Uh, the first section is house church, second section is economics, the third section is empire. And then we're gonna end our time by having conversation about the New Testament economics and the 21st century. What, what can the New Testament teach us as Christians about how we should think about economics today? And what uh, should we avoid trying to make the New Testament say uh, for the 21st century that it really isn't saying? So 
Um, so let's uh, get into the discussion. One of the things that interested me about uh, about the, this book, the first was his is his first section on house churches and the various kinds of church houses uh, and economically how they functioned. And it was interesting that he used, um, uh, it's not entirely surprising, he used what we know about uh, excavations and sources from Pompeii. Right, uh, right. Even though, even though there, we have no knowledge, we have no indication that a house church ever existed there prior to the eruption. For those of you uh, not familiar, Pompeii was a first century Roman city that uh, was one of two cities buried by Mount Vesuvius uh, when it erupted in 79 AD. And so as a result, uh, we have uh, been able to excavate this town covered for centuries uh, in many ways intact. And so it's been, it's been a treasure trove of information, but he uses, I, I found it interesting that he used that. So, so um, can you talk just a little bit about uh, the different house churches or the different kinds of houses he talks about and their how they might have functioned economically in first century Rome? Well, um, no expert, just going by what I saw in the book. Uh, and I have read other books that are looking at the idea of uh, fictive family and how this all fit into the interpretation of, of our of our Christian life together in the New Testament. I think in the the, th the key things about the uh, the book that he's talking about, is, like you said, he's referring back to Pompeii and he's looking at the stratification of different types of churches I and mean, different types of, of houses that were there. And in fact, drawing very clearly the point that um, very different from our contemporary world where you have a nuclear family living in its own individual isolated home, the household was an extended network of family and non-family members. And he shows that the, the wealthy, there were the very elite who had their houses. He points to one particular house, which is probably in the top 25% of houses in terms of size and shows the, uh, the connections the, from the, the survey that they did at Pompeii, the various miscellaneous rooms uh, and the households that were attached all in one structure. Um, and the the other the, I think the aspect to me that's the most interesting about these ancient households they talk about it there being a, a pyramid structure of relationships the the patronage system so each household had a a paterfamilias who was the head of the household and then everybody sort of answered to that paterfamilias and that was the one who also provisioned the household the that person was no paterfamilias was self sufficient so you had to then negotiate with other households. And that's where a lot of the, the level of economic negotiation occurred was between these uh, people. Um, so in terms of characterizing what it would mean for the various household churches, you were expected to toe the line of whatever the paterfamilias believed. That, that was who you were responsible to. If the paterfamilias was a Christian, you have one set of circumstances in terms of being able to hold church in the house. And they, they talk about some of the houses, the uh, the one that he reviews in the book could have held like, I think he said, what, 300 people, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the courtyard there. So we're not talking just about a couple dozen folks. These Some of these houses were, were capable of holding quite sizable uh, uh, communities together. But he also then goes on to point out that there are other types of households where you might have, um, someone who is a Christian and they are holding household churches in their facility, but the, the paterfamilias is not a Christian and the difficulties that has, or you're, you're going to somebody else's household in order to participate in Christian worship services. And then what does that say about your loyalty to your head of the household in your family? And so there begins to be all sorts of dicey uh, political economic ramifications that aren't obvious to us in our world when you're um, when you're talking about what it means to be a household and be a family, and so he he goes into variety and I don't know how, how deep you want to go and what direction you want to go with this, but I mean he just he lists about half a dozen different uh, possible uh, scenarios of people and and uh, the circumstances they might find themselves in. So 
Yeah. Yeah. No. And and what was the one, so so to sort of put this, if I could try and draw a parallel or something to today, you know, I've got I've got two neighbors where I live, and I know them, and we have conversation, and sometimes we help each other with different things, but I don't really do business with them. I don't really have any kind of a connection with them. Well, you know, we we probably have connections because you know the one guy. You know, he works for uh, an energy company, so I probably maybe get energy from the company he works for. But we right. don't have any kind of direct economic connection, right? We don't right. really do business with each other. What you're saying is, is that what what Oaks is describing is very much something different. Where that, if this were the first century, I would be doing business with them. In fact, the household basically is a business. The household I mean, that, is a business. That, the household is a business. Uh, and so you you had people doing, uh, living and working in the same place very often. And then yeah. the, the, the paterfamilias, I'm trying to remember what uh, line of work he, the, the household that he looked at, I forgot what he said that they were, I've completely slipped my mind here. But anyway, they're in a particular craft. And he had- Oh, well, he talked about a cabinet maker. Cabinet maker, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So he talked, you had the cabinet maker. And so they're they're making cabinets there. And he has people who are not his part of his biological family who were there in the household making cabinets, living there, making cabinets, but they are part of the household. Yeah. So when you're talking about the household and uh, it's it's a it's not just a family relationship, it's also a business relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And so and and so I'm so I be so I'm I'm working for the cabinet maker. And I come, I come, I come to know Jesus, and I become a follower of this of this uh, new religion. Uh, but uh, the my my employer, boss, head of family, all of that is not uh, worships the local deities. What kind of problems could that pose for me? I mean, basically, if if I understand what these authors are saying, is that if you do not have those connections, you do not have, you're not part of that pyramid, somewhere in that pyramid where you have somebody looking out for you, you end up finding yourself isolated. There are significant economic and social ramifications by being uh, booted from that, yeah. that pyramid system. And uh, certainly offending the paterfamilias of the household you're supposed to be in is, is not a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. So that has ramifications for your livelihood. Right, exactly. So, so, so much for my religion being my own private thing, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and, exactly. and then, it, so there might have been actually some expectation that, I, you know, uh, I would worship the deity that the pat, paterfamilias worships. Exactly. Pay homage to the deity. Right, yeah. Yeah. Wow, so um, you, you talked about uh, the relationships between households, uh, the, right. you know, that. Uh, I, as a, the head of a household, would also uh, need to have connections to the neighbor next door. Economic, what, what might those economic relationships look like? Well, I think if you needed materials, you're, you're a carpenter and you, you obviously need the wood uh, that, that you're going to work on. Um, I generally, it's going to be relationships, established relationships that your pattern familias has with somebody else who's a supplier. Yeah. And to not purchase from that person who your pattern familias has that relationship with then becomes an insult to that that person. And you you break off that that connection that the pattern familias have with with the uh, the contracts that he wanted to set up. So now you're you it's not a market system in the sense of where I need materials. So I just go down to the Home Depot or the, the Lowe's and find the cheapest wood and bring it back home. Yeah, It's all about these relationships that exist between uh, people at various levels. And so it depends on where you are in the pyramid as to what your uh, options are in terms of uh, provisioning yourself economically and taking care of yourself economically and the economic decisions you make. And generally, only the people the, towards the top end of the pyramid are the ones making the big economic decisions. Yeah. So, for me then to become a Christian is—I mean, this is not a, this is not a small decision um, because it could affect my very livelihood. Right, and yeah. and I, I I think the the other piece which he's getting to, and I've, I've seen other authors get to as well. He he just touches on this briefly, 
Um, I, as I recall, the statistics that he showed were approximately upwards of two thirds of people either lived you know, below subsistence level or just barely above, just kind of sustaining above subsistence level. So that's two thirds of the people. Yeah. And so you are in a precarious situation already. Um, and you think about uh, things like uh, taking care of others when it talks about feeding others or giving of your, your resources and so on, you're already in a precarious situation. So there's, you're putting your own personal self at risk because of how much money are you gonna have for yourself and for your family to survive on. And then if you get into the thing that the paterfamilias, if your paterfamilias is not a, a Christian and you are giving a resources from the household, say holding a house church there yeah. um, and feeding people, you're using the money and the resources and the space of somebody who's not a Christian or, and so those are limited resources. And so now you're, you know, it's, it's a complicated economic question. Yeah, it is complicated. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to ask you a little bit sooner, but uh, I'll ask you now because I think it, because you talked about limited resources. Uh, on he, he goes on in, early in the book, uh, he right. talks about definition of economics and mm -hmm. he prefers the definition. He offers this on page 68, the study of the allocation of scarce resources. Right. What, how do you feel about that decision, uh, the definition? Do you? It's, it's, a, it's a complicated uh, question for a couple things, for a couple of reasons. And I'll go back to actually something else uh, to, to sort of highlight my point. So often when I uh, go to church or I read articles uh, written by theologians talk about economics, a common theme is that we are to live our lives out of abundance and not to live our lives in a mindset of scarcity. Right. And some will even go as far as to say that um, God is a God of abundance, but economics wants you to live with a mindset of scarcity that, mm -hmm. that you're supposed to be, you know, always, always anxious about the future. Most economists that I have ever read just are, are appalled at that kind of characterization okay. of what economics is about. And the first and the reason I would say that is if you think about it for a second, you say God has created the world with abundance. If you look around at everything that you use in your daily life, and I mean virtually everything, almost everything that you use that's in useful form is in useful form because human beings took energy, information, and data and transformed it into a more useful form. Right. And that's everything around you. So God has actually created no abundance in that sense, in terms of the stuff that you use in daily life, the abundance comes from the from human beings transforming it from less useful form into a more useful form. And I think it was now when he talked about we when we have even communion, he says, we don't eat of the, the wheat and the grape, we eat of the, the bread and the wine. Right. There was a human component to that. And so the idea is, is that abundance is created, but God obviously is the one who gives us the power and the strength to be able to create that abundance. And when that's what would be the desirable outcome of human labor is abundance created. And then that abundance needs to be shared and needs to be distributed well. So the, the, um, the economist is not saying that scarcity is something, is an ideal state that we should try to pursue. They see scarcity as the natural beginning point for studying how it is that abundance is created so we can better understand it and do that well and do that justly and however you wanna measure what's just, but that's the beginning point of the discussion. So the question is not to live in scarcity. The question is, is how do we end up living in abundance? Right. So that's, that's how an economist would phrase the question, I think. Yeah. So an abundance of bread in a small village is created because people plant the wheat and harvest the wheat and right. do everything they need to do to make bread. Right. Uh, but on its own, it just doesn't start out that way. Right. And, and I'd say the piece to this that I think often gets confused. Uh, well, I shouldn't say confused, but it's, it's a transition that a lot of people don't think about, is that through much of human history, until the past couple hundred years, the primary inputs into uh, production were land and labor. That, that's what there was. That's, how you, that's where everything came from. There is only so much work that an individual 
unaided by tools and technology and all that stuff. There's only so much productivity that an individual can do. There's only so much uh, resources or crops that an individual acre of land can produce. You can go to a certain maximum, that's it. And so when you look at it from that standpoint, if you're going to grow wealthy beyond that point, the only way to get wealthier is you have to get more labor or you have to get more land. And so that's where a lot of the, the conflicts over history have been. Right. And so then your economic question, productivity is not even an issue in there. Productivity is relatively fixed. So then the question becomes, the big economic question is how should we share this stuff that's there? It's just taken that there's sort of this fixed level of productivity and that's all there will ever be. And what I think has changed that creates lots of complication for us in terms of looking at scripture and trying to bring that forward into a modern economy is that over the past 200 years, we have figured out how to radically increase production through application of technology, exchange, um, you know, markets, that type of thing. So that has radically increased production. And so production becomes a central question as how to share the stuff. How do we produce it? What's the right thing to do? And so the problem is, is two ways. One is, is I think we, we get stuck in this sort of um, ancient order of things and looking at the uh, ethical reflection that occurred in the past, trying to apply that to the present, or, and this is finally circling back to your original question, the other temptation is to take our current economic order and to place that understanding and try to analyze past cultures. And so in the one sense, if you were to say, look at the culture today and say the economics is to study how uh, scarce, uh, scarce uh, resources are allocated, I would say that's not complete enough. Because what we have today is we have markets, we have people, individuals have choices. So you're wanting the, I think economics appropriately says that we are studying the choices people make relative to scarce resources. But as Oakes points out in the ancient world, few people had choices. You're in that right. pyramid relationship. You were given what was given to you and there really wasn't that much surplus. So you were, there weren't a lot of choices being made. I think that's, a, and so I would say he's correct for the ancient world, the economics for the ancient world, studying how rare uh, scarce resources are shared is accurate, but it's probably not an accurate description of what we should be doing today. Okay, so that's that's helpful. Yeah, that's helpful. Because yeah. when I read that, I, I, I uh, probably was reading some of my own understandings back into that. So I wasn't yeah. sure what I felt about that, but that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Um, let's, um, so we talked about, uh, you talked about the church, the house church and some house churches perhaps being large enough that maybe the house church was two or 300 people. Right. Uh, that really got me, uh, got me thinking. Uh, and he mentions in here at one point, uh, the discussion in First Corinthians about the Lord's Supper and right. that they have, you know, the Lord's Supper is being uh, celebrated in this house church, we presume. Of course, we don't know anything about the size of the house church. You know, we don't know anything sure. about that. But conceivably, what we've got going on here is not 15 people meeting or 20 people, but we could have. Sure. Right. And uh, so and, and Paul is course very concerned about the way the supper is being celebrated um he says it's not the lord's supper it's your own supper it's, you know you're being selfish and self-centered what would have what would and and of course again if we're reading that text we get that some are going ahead and eating ahead of others and others right. are are despising those you know is this kind of a big potluck and, you know yeah Others are not are, are not able to bring, and they're being despised. And other people are drinking and uh, wine uh, at the at the supper, which would have been the custom certainly, and right. are drinking too much. And it's it's uh, it, it it isn't reflecting the character of the church as the body of Christ. What would what would? And again, we're doing guesswork here, but based on what we know, <laughs> right. Right? right, right. What would have been some of the interesting dynamics that? Is, is not clearly mentioned by Paul, but might have been operative, operating behind the scenes of how that, la that Lord's Supper was being celebrated and for, and for Paul, not for the better. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the aspects that he talks about is, so you, you have the house church and you serve this, this meal 
And uh, the clear one, which is the one you just alluded to, the people that are the, the poorest, if all the, the wealthier people are getting there first, they're eating up all the food, there's nothing left for the poor. That's the obvious one. But there's another implication is, well, I mean, several implications, but one of them I thought was particularly interesting. Let's say you're, you're not particularly poor, but you're in a household um, where the head of the household is not a Christian, but you're coming over to this other household in order to be a part of that, that Christian community. You are then coming over to that household to eat their food, to consume their resources, when you could be consuming the resources at home where you should be in the first place of the person who's not a Christian, leaving those resources available and not consuming the resources of the person who is a Christian, who's then trying to be of service to, to the community. Um, so it's, um, it's not just a matter of Christians should all be eating at home. It was uh, this dynamics of the uh, economic impact that you were having, both in terms of freeing up resources for the church, and then, um, yeah, right. I'll just leave it there. Yeah. So, so, so when Paul says, when Paul says to uh, Corinthians, "Do you not have your own homes to eat and drink in?" Right. That's going to be what he's getting at. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. so there would have been a conscious concern that the community, of course, gets together and fellowships and worships together, but but there would have been a legitimate concern that. Christians don't uh, provide a good witness if they're eating up other people's food. Exactly. Right. But yeah. it's just not a very good economic calculation. Uh, yeah. If you if, if you are in a household that where the, the head of the household is not a Christian, it's it, on the one hand, you're going you're not consuming what you could be consuming there and, and would be anyway. So now uh, you're placing that burden of provisioning for you over with the Christian church. Yeah. Where you're now going and eating their food at communion, which yeah. both depletes their resources unnecessarily. Yeah. So. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. so the passage, there's more to meet the eye in this passage. Right. Uh, yeah. We need to do a little digging on. I just found that to be interesting. Also, really yeah. uh, uh, comprehending the fact that, uh, uh, you know, again, we, we say house church, we think, you know, I mean, if someone says today to me, as I have friends who are part of a house church, I mean, right. you know, I'm thinking 15, 20 people. Sure. Uh, these house churches, you know, if the patron, uh, if the, the head of the household was a Christian, let's just say, and hosting right. this, you know, you could be hosting a couple hundred people. That that looks that looks a lot different. Yeah. Gathering of 20, doesn't it? Yes. And also it creates I would, a lot more complications. It creates a lot more complications. And I suspect it puts you on a bigger radar in terms of the authorities in the, the local town, that this, this large group that uh, has no official status is gathering together on a regular basis. Uh, yeah. And yeah. what's going on there? Why are they doing that? Yeah. And they don't, and they don't do this emperor worship stuff. And, uh, you know, what's, uh, these people are from slaves to people that are up to the elite level and everything in between. And you got men and women speaking in, in, in public. I mean, what's going on here? Uh, and I, I've always found it interesting when you talk about that because I've often thought that in the in the stratified Roman Empire, yeah, uh, slaves and masters worshiping together and calling each other brother and sister would have been a very strange thing yes. to witness, right? Yeah, in right. this very stratified society, um, it, it uh, but but it adds but but the, but the the size of this adds another layer to it. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about that, which you just mentioned with uh, not paying homage to the emperor. One of the things that he talks about, and it's something uh, that I've done some work on, is when we talk about the empire and the emperor cult, uh, that it, it, it varies in different places in the empire. Not every place has a strong emperor cult. Uh, right. strong right. devotion to the emperor. You know, there, there's been, as you know, within the last 20 years, uh, a lot of work on empire criticism. Right. And uh, some, some people like uh, Tom Wright, who I just love his work, and I'm a big fan of his, but man, he sees empire under every rock right. Right. in the New Testament, which I think is going way too far. 
Having said that, I do think that he and others are onto something uh, when they also say there would have been places where the Christians would have had a, had a lot of pressure on them to involve themselves in, even if we don't want to call it emperor worship, call it, um, you know, honoring, we'll call it honoring the emperor in some way. And that had economic ramifications, you know, uh, you know, you have places like Philippi, we know had a, had a, had an emperor, uh, cultic temple. And, uh, so, so talk a little bit about that. What, what kind of pressures would, would you have had as a Christian, uh, in reference to the, uh, the empire, the national, the, we'll call it the imperial, the imperials, good word, right. the imperial machine and uh, how that affected you economically, depending on what you did or didn't do. I think it's an interesting question. I thought he, he raised some interesting points in the book about the fact that you have the, the festivals that were, yeah. that were centered around uh, emperor worship, but how deep down the pyramid of people in society did uh, participation in those festivals go? And I, I think he raises some really interesting uh, questions about how deep that went. Certainly the elites, probably the, the retainers, maybe those people that were sort of at that next level of response to people that were elites. But I think he demonstrates pretty clearly that probably the great masses were not, it was not an issue um, in terms of having to participate in those festivals. So I suspect for a great many Christians that that may not have been most of the time a, a tremendous uh, struggle, you know, for them in terms of participating in those. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, the read, and I think that was also one of the keys that he makes to the to the book is that there's 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 two challenges here. One is to try to generalize across the Roman Empire. You're you're trying to sort of get some macro pictures of things, but then there are individual locations that have their own specifics. Uh, is, is it a colony or is it a, a province? Um, what's going on there? Talk about uh, uh, Caesarea, um, you know, what was what was happening in that area versus, you know, what might be happening in Rome. Um, so there's there's a number of different layers depending on where you are locally. So you, then you begin to analyze locally and the temptation then is to generalize out from that to the to the rest of the empire. So going both directions, and part of the challenge is not having a lot of good detail um, from across the empire. So you're, you are left with some degree of, uh, of guesswork uh, in this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think one of his lines uh, in reference to you talking about the people down on the pyramid in the festivals, yeah. he said there probably wouldn't have been a lot of people uh, care whether or not the uh, poor right. showed up for the free stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, because that's what you do at festivals. You know, you you give you have food and people get. You know, you, you're you're pleasing the people. Your your uh, constituents, although that's probably not the best term, but uh, right. they're probably not interested in whether or not you uh, you as the person living hand to mouth went to the festival to uh, honor the emperor. That's just not on their radar. Exactly right, and he, he he points out something that I think I think is also relevant and often relevant to today. That the bigger issue might have been, your becoming a Christian would have uh, possibly more likely offended family members, members right. of the household, uh, right. you know, than you would have the Praetorian Guard that, right. that exactly would have been who would have could have been most uh, put out by uh, that change of. of you know, deity allegiance uh, would have been actually the people you do business with. Exactly, right. And so therefore, and, that, and that's a sort of a theme of his book that he feels is often overlooked is that when Paul writes and he talks about the suffering of people in such and such a place, that a big part of that suffering is probably less so oppression by Romans and more the economic and social consequences of the decisions that they've made. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think that that was a, interesting observation yeah he uh he he i really i have to say um the, the one chapter he did on corinth was interesting to me he, he talks about um the issue of idle food right um, 
which is uh, it's just that's the word used in the Greek, idle food. What does that mean? And so you've got three different options, he says, or three different issues. One is eating in the temple. Um, and another is buying, buying meat that had been offered to idols in the marketplace. And the third, as I recall, has to do with uh, family members. And now when we say family, we don't necessarily mean blood, right? We mean right. yeah, yeah. Uh, someone else in the household whom you work with inviting you to a special occasion, let's just say a wedding anniversary or a birthday party, that right. part of which would have taken place in a setting where at some point you would give uh, some kind of homage to whatever deity it was that your host, host worshiped. Right. And that, that could create some progress. Sure. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't go to your 30th wedding anniversary party, <laughs> right? Because right. at some point you're going to uh, invoke uh, a deity I just don't worship. Right. Yeah. Well, and I, I think one of the, you mentioned um, right being very much seeing the, the empires, you know, thing yeah. being so much a central part of this. And I think it's, and again, I'm not, I'm not an authority on, on these, these, uh, house churches or these ancient households, but it rings true to me what he is saying is that so much of the scripture, the, the authors, it's a very ambivalent kind of relationship. That on the one hand, there's this sort of respect and uh, approval of the, the Pax Romana, the peace that has been brought there and what that brings about, but then at other points, very critical turns and um, obviously, what I would call subversion of, of Roman values uh, that Christians are trying to, to uh, enact. And all those things are all mixed together. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's not a clear, you know, he was supportive of empire or opposed to empire. It's, it, it was complicated. And I, yeah, I, and that and I liked that. your word ambivalent because I think that, yeah. I think that is a good way to describe it. Uh, one of yeah. the things that uh, has interested me is when you, um, when you read the passages in the New Testament where you've got Peter and you've got uh, First Timothy, I think, uh, First or Second Timothy, about praying for authority. Right. And, you know, we in our current context understand that in a positive way. Praying right. for authorities, you know, because, you know, they're, they're, uh, they do just, they do well. We, we benefit from good authority and good, you know, moral leadership. Right. So let's pray for them. We see that in a positive way. When I read those texts in the New Testament, I'm praying for authority. It's kind of uh, pray for those in authority so that maybe they'll just leave us alone. Right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, it, you know, so we, we trot out these verses every election, you know, and, I, and, and we're rightly so. I, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't yeah. use it, but I'm right. just saying that there's a different context here where they just want to be left alone so that they can practice their faith and do their thing uh, right. without having to have the authorities coming down on their necks. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 I think that's, a, that was the impression I have as well too. Yeah. And uh, I, I having a hard time remembering the specifics uh, examples he, he gave, but the, just the idea that there were advantages to having had Rome doing what it does um, and to the church, but it is also the sense, particularly you get to books like revelation where you know, yeah. Rome is just the apostasy of, of everything of, uh, that's Christian. It's uh... yeah. I kind of, I kind of see Paul on this as you know, I'm going to use the peace of Rome and their Roman road system to proclaim the gospel. Thank God the Romans built such great roads. Right. It doesn't mean I got to baptize the all the workings of the empire. Right. Right. Well, and and yeah, and I thought his point about Luke. Uh, in writing the gospel of Luke and Acts and talk about, you know, Luke is sort of the champion of the poor and, and uh, you would see him as sort of, a lot of people would, cat would categorize him as sort of this big anti-Roman uh, person. And yet, if you look at Acts and the various people that are Roman that he discusses, it's a much more complicated picture. They yeah. do some, the same person does some good stuff and they do some bad stuff. And, yeah. you know, it's a, yeah, which to me is a more, it just speaks to the truth of the, the, the scripture uh, even better because I think that's a realistic portrayal of what reality is 
is like in most ages and times. Yeah. It's really isn't it nice to know that uh, that they that the things were just as complex as they are today. We do tend to have a perspective, don't we? That the that the past was a simpler time. Yeah. Right. We always talk about right. the good old days. I always yep. said that when people talk about the good old days, uh, what they're really doing is confessing that they have selective amnesia. Uh, because you know the good old days. I'm sure there were good things in the good old days, but not everything was good. Yep. We want to keep things just the way they never were. We want to keep things the way they never were. Good way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing that was interesting to me, and I and, and I I mean I know this, but he brought this point home on a couple things. And so one example he uses is Luke. Uh, again, Luke, where uh, in the Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter six, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. Right. He he brings up what's really important when it comes to interpretation. He says, Okay. How do we read this text? Yes. Because right. we've got Jesus in his first century context. Right. Says, blessed are the poor. Then we got Luke in his context who says, blessed are the poor. Well, what does Luke mean? Does he mean right. what Jesus means? And right. then you've got Theophilus, whoever Theophilus was. Exactly. Right. Uh, reading, blessed are the poor. How is Theophilus reading that? And then right. if I could add the next layer, you and I in the 21st century affluent West right. are reading, blessed are the poor. How right. are we reading that? Exactly. So there's layers of interpretation that we have to sort of dig through. If we, if, if we I don't want to say hope to understand the text, but, but if we can at least have the text become clearer in our minds and then so right. we know what to do with it. Right, yeah. I think that's exactly right. What you laid out there to me was one of the more fascinating aspects about that is the, and to me, that's one of the reasons, um, I, as you know, my background, I'm sort of coming at this from the economic side of thing and, yeah. and wanting to understand economics. Well, oikos, household, I mean, that's that's where the word economics come from is, is oikos. And so in the ancient world, the household unit was the unit of, of uh, economic activity, not the individual. And so in the, that, that's what you're looking at when you're, you're in the New Testament and, and looking at these things. And so then you begin to think, um, so what does that mean in that context when you start talking about people who are poor, talk, talking about their families? Um, the, the whole thing with Luke and who's reading it and who's poor versus uh, Jesus talks about them being poor. Well, I think a lot of people have suggested that the disciples were not the poorest of people right. in the community. They they were you know, probably anachronistic to call them middle class, but they they certainly were not among the poorest ranks. Those that were uh, poorest rungs, those were, were uh, living below subsistence or just at subsistence level. They're probably better than that. And so Jesus is talking about uh, blessed are the poor. Well, are we talking about people of the disciples level of society or are we talking about people other than them or yeah. Yeah. It's a complicated story. Yeah. So so where do you stand on that? I mean, I always say the rich are people who make more money than I do. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, how does yeah. that how does that work? Yeah. It is fascinating. Um, so let's turn a little bit now to the 21st century. So yeah. I have had a bug in my uh, bonnet for a long time now, and I know I know this concerns you too, about people wanting to take what we read in the Bible, not just the New, but the Old Testament as well, it takes and draw straight lines. And it's not just, yeah. we just don't do this with economics, we do it with politics right. and other things. Right. Where we want to draw a straight line from the New Testament to 21st century, in, in our context, American culture, American economics. Exactly. So we get uh, we we get these social media memes. Um, our friends on the left are probably guilty of this more often. We'll you know post things like Jesus was a left wing socialist, or mm -hmm. you know Jesus did miracles and therefore would have supported free healthcare or, or you know socialized medicine. And then you got the folks on the right. There's not too I mean they had they have their own issues with what they read. But you know, I've had I've had people who are Christians, friends of mine, who are more conservative, who truly think that if Jesus were here today, he'd support free markets and be a tax cut. Right. right. So, and and I just think you can't draw those lines. So, what are some of the what are some of the lines we draw that you have seen and heard, and you know, 
uh, read on that you think are are think are lines that shouldn't be drawn? Where do we where do we make those connections where we're just wrong? Well, I think part of the problem, uh, and you, you're getting right to the heart of it, the debate about socialism versus capitalism, and and what's the and then going to scripture and essentially trying to proof text either of those. The Bible doesn't teach socialism or capitalism. The, those are things that we could really only discuss in the past couple hundred years. And part of it's because of this great divergence that I talked about in terms of how productivity happens and this tremendous superabundance compared to by historical standards that human beings have. And so the tendency is to look back and see in acts that, uh, you know, after the, the Pentecost and they all got together and they all had everything in common. Well, see, they're socialists. They, yeah. they well, no, they, they aren't. Or uh, in the parable Jesus talks about, they went out and uh, they took their talents and they invested them. And the one who made the most was the one who, so see, Jesus was for capitalism. He wanted us to go out and invest things. And the good sign of stewardship is for us to invest resources well and to make lots of money. And you know, no, 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 <laughs> that, that is a very superficial sort of, uh, of read in terms of how scripture works. And I think that that's the part that I become the, the most frustrated with. Um, and then I think the, it was Pope John Paul uh, II who said that poverty is not a lack of resources, it's exclusions from networks of productivity. Yeah. And I, I think for me in terms of, if I think of that model of things, in the, as I was saying earlier, in the ancient world, it was a relatively fixed world in terms of economics. There were only so many resources. And so your profound economic questions began, they became around how to redistribute those so that everybody had enough. And in the modern world, you have this idea that everybody is potentially more productive than, than they are now. And society is more productive. And the way that people become wealthy is that they become more productive. And so therefore they reap more resources. They, they, they become, they reap more wealth out of that. So the wealth, the, the pie of wealth is continuing to grow. And so the way that people, the, the way that you benefit people is by including them into those networks of productivity and exchange so that they too also become wealthy. Now that raises a whole other layer of questions, which I don't think existed in the world, how productive do we want to become? And what level of energy should we be putting into improving our productivity versus other concerns that we have? And of course, you get around the issues of climate uh, right now we, uh, and uh, environmental uh, destruction uh, that occurs. So those are things that put some dampers, I think, from a Christian standpoint in terms of how we think about productivity. But the, the problem that I often have is people not seeing the great divergence that happened with the past a couple hundred years ago and the implications of what that means for how we think about economics in our present time. Yeah, yeah, one of the things, one of the things I say to folks to try to help, uh, help them think about that is I'll say, George Washington, who lived back in the late 17th, 18th century, um, who was, who was 200 plus years removed from us and 1700 years removed from Jesus. Yeah. His way of life was closer to Jesus than it, than it is to ours. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. They, he didn't, he, he had to go, he had to go to the outhouse, you know, yeah. uh, he had to light, he had to light his way at night with flame right. and had to deal with the food, the way they dealt with it. And so, you know, to think about that for a minute, is that uh, that he was closer in way of life to Jesus than he was to us today. Right. And I, I don't have the source for this, but I do remember reading sometime back, comparing 1885, I think it was to 1915 in the United right. States. And the, the quote was something to the effect that in 1885, 80% of everything that Americans consumed, they made or grew themselves. By 1915, that had flipped. 80% of everything that they consumed, they bought or purchased um, elsewhere. And so you had this tremendous transfer, 
information where you have specialization of labor and you have trade that then becomes the new norm for how people provision themselves. And I think one of the interesting insights into that is, is that we talk about um, in the ancient world, you basically spent most of your day simply trying to grow the food, um, build the shelter, yeah. do the, the very basics of existence to keep yourself alive. And yet people looked at themselves as being more, they looked at themselves as being interdependent, even though individual families and households produced and consumed almost everything internally, all right? Now, in the modern culture where we have this tremendous specialization of labor and trade and so on, we view ourselves as being um, self-sufficient and, and provisioning ourselves when in fact we are more interdependent than in any human beings that have ever been in the past. And so it creates this weird flip uh, where in the ancient world they, conceive, they perceive themselves as being interdependent and really we're not in an economic sense, but today uh, where we are independent, we don't perceive ourselves as being. Oh, that's another conversation for another time. Yeah. That's an interesting insight. I appreciate that. So, okay, so there's so there's things we do trying to draw draw direct lines to, the, to today from the Bible we can too. What can we learn from the Bible in reference yeah. to, you know, I'm a Christian. I want to be a good steward. I want to, of uh, my money, I want to, um, live faithfully with those around me. And I know part of that right. includes economics as well. What can I learn from the New Testament? Uh, we'll say the New Testament specifically. What can I learn from the New Testament? What can it teach me about my economic life? Right. Well, I think one of the things, that, well, I'll back up and say this too, that one of the things that I found the most fascinating when it was in, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, Families in the New Testament, I think it is. And okay. I think the author's names are Osik and Balch. I'm not, I don't know if I'm oh, pronouncing oh, names oh, right. Oh, David Balch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's, he's written stuff on household, households right. in the New Testament. Yeah. Right. So they, they wrote this book, I think it's like 97. Yeah. And they, they go into discussing the, the history of Rome, the Senate uh, was in chaos. Uh, Julius Caesar, you know, is, is triumphant, but then he's murdered. And a couple of years after that, he's promoted to this idea of being God and Augustus comes along and he's trying to figure out how he can unify Rome into to being um, a, 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 a unit that he has control over. And what he basically does is he, ops, he creates this idea of Rome as a fictive family, as a fictive household. And so while you had the individual senators that were all competing with each, with each other, he puts himself as the patrofamilias, and then all of the pyramids are supposed to come through him. And he worked for years at trying to develop that, that he was the head of the household in terms of Rome. And if you talk about in the New Testament, particularly once we get past the Gospels and we're in the Greco-Roman world in terms of uh, discussion that's happening in Rome, the imagery is all about Jesus is the head of the household. And that Jesus is the one that all of these pyramids feed up into and that everything flows out of. And I think the point that he makes in terms of the household in the New Testament era was that the household was all set up to feed upward, to feed the paterfamilias, to be the paterfamilias, uh, to, to serve him. Yeah. Whereas in the instructions that you read in the New Testament writers, everything is flipped. Everything is supposed to be about how the patrofamilias empowers and feeds those that are below. And so I think there's this, this sense that the household business is, in, a, in both that sense and today, transferring that forward, is supposed to be, how does everyone provision? How do we, those at the top, end up best um, equipping and providing for those that are below? That makes sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah, and so, so I think it's, it's a subversion of yeah, the way so that the world sense, looks at it. the pyramid in some ways, flipping it upside down. Right. Uh, standing it on its point. Right. Which, of course, Jesus uh, Jesus himself talks about that, about the, in the kingdoms, uh, you know, those they lord it over, those who are in charge lord it over, and then you get to the bottom, and it's, but it's not that way. Right. So, so then... Um, 
one of the things that uh, I need to ponder as a Christian then is um, my, uh, my, I don't know if you can hear that, but that's our tornado siren going off. It's just the same thing happening right here right now. So, oh, is that right? Yeah, we have no tornado. It's 12 o'clock, you know, it's a 12 o'clock test. Yeah. <laughs> so, our, we're not, we're not seeking yeah. shelter. Um, no. But, um, uh, so, so, you know, one of the things that I need to think about then is if I could determine my place on the pyramid um, somewhere that my task is actually one of the things is to is to find ways to practice generosity exactly yeah, yeah. well and and i think so if we're, we're bringing that forward and I, I go back to my john paul ii quote what is the the thing that i can do best for the person who is without provision and without resources mm -hmm. and so in the ancient world we would say well our, our the best thing that we can do is to give to them, to be generous, to give money to them, to support them. And I think in the 21st century, and, and, and I'm not saying that is never, and obviously is, is important, right? I'm not saying we discount that, but I'm saying that that's not all that we do, that that maybe yeah. is even a, a, a lesser thing. The real issue is, why has that person been excluded from the networks of product productivity and exchange that would uh, enable them not to be in that position yeah. how do we remove those barriers that have excluded them from participating whether that's because of race whether it's because of you know ethnicity whether it's because they're uh, women whether it's because whatever um if people are allowed and included to exchange and, and specialize their labor and to contribute to each other we should expect an increase in productivity that would benefit everyone right um, yeah yeah so it's so um yeah, because you know, uh, you know what? That's harder work. Oh, that's a lot harder work. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I can I can give a, I can give a guy five bucks on the street, and uh, feel good about that. Um, it's harder to actually build relationships and work to uh, find ways to include this person as part of the uh, productivity uh, apparatus and become productive. I mean, it's a good thing. Right. I think everybody would say that's a good thing. But right. it, it is a lot. It's a hot, lot harder. Um, it takes it takes a, a real commitment, doesn't it? Well, it does, and it's the the idea of um, doing a church mission project where we go and we do for others. Yeah, and that feels very rewarding to us in yeah. terms of us having given to others. But uh, you know, you get to Bob Lupton some of his stuff about toxic charity and so on. Is does it just become about us stroking ourselves? versus yeah. what real impact are we having to help others yeah and I, yeah I, I don't want to dismiss that all of that is wrong it's not my intention to to suggest right. that but the really hard question the really difficult question is for the person who's been systemically excluded from being a part of those networks of productivity exchange how do you get them included yeah. and most churches are not equipped <laughs> to think at that level and most of the theological academy in my estimation is not equipped to think at that level yeah. and that's where i think there has to be a good conversation and dialogue between people who are theologians and economists to really reflect deeply on what that means yeah, yeah um yeah i i sometimes as a pastor and i know i'm not an economist i i i yeah. read on it and you know but that's neither am i expert <laughs> and i yeah but you're far you're far better versed in this than i am but I sometimes, when I hear some of my colleagues preach, like at, uh, I'll go to annual conference, or when that's about the only time I get to hear preachers, yeah. uh, sometimes some of the things they'll say about economics, I just cringe. And yeah. I think to myself, right. oh, what would my economist friends <laughs> at university think of what this was just said? Right. Because, yeah. yes, you know, I said, you know, there's no doubt that the Bible is clear that the Bible commands us to assist the poor, to assist right. those on the margins, right. no matter who they are, orphans, widows, whatever. We, right. I mean, that if, if there's one thing that, that you just can't dispute in the Bible, it's that. Right. The question is how you do it. Right. And what's the best way to do it. Right. Um, and uh, so sometimes, uh, 
So, you know, I always say that, uh, you know, one of my jobs as a preacher is to remind people that the most vulnerable are should be of central concern for us. But right. that doesn't mean I know all of the ways in order to uh, address that concern. You've right. got to have other people who know what they're doing as well and have ideas. You know, I read Toxic Charity. That was, yeah. uh, that was in, uh, in many ways, it just sort of a revolution for me. Yeah. I, I had a, when I was in Haiti, when I, I did some mission work in Haiti years ago, and the missionary I worked with, he sort of got into that as well, the, this issue. And so he actually started, you know, churches would come to do mission projects, but he would also... Uh, he found money to hire locals to help, right. you know, right. part of, and part of what it included was feeding them breakfast in the morning because a lot of them had not even eaten breakfast. So exactly. he would include a meal in that, but also involve them in the building to help, you know, nurture some skills, but not only that, give them a sense is that, that you know, put, you know, give them skin in the game in a sense. Right. Right. And, and that, uh, he found that to be one of the, one of, he said one of his smarter moves, you know. Right. Well, and I, th I think so much of this is that a lot of these people that are in communities that traditionally have been excluded is they have a pretty good sense very often of what needs to be done for them to be included. The challenge is for many of us that are white, middle class and above, and uh, we have we, we like we like to think we can fix things. And so we, we've got a solution. And so we go in with a solution to impose rather than being in community with people who've been excluded and listening and asking them and thinking through together what, what it is that would most uh, facilitate that inclusion. Yeah. And uh, that's, I think that that would help a lot of things, but most of us are not patient enough to do that. Yeah, and I would say, I've also said that I think that we would make further progress on these kinds of issues if uh, so many of us who are white and middle class uh, would quit white explaining to other communities right. what they need to do, right? Or to diagnosing their problem, we know how to right. fix your problem. Here's the problem, and and not wanting to listen to what they have to say because the reality is we don't necessarily want to hear because it could make us what some of what they say would be very um, you know uncomfortable. Well, the truth is we're often implicated. We're often implicated. We're That's often a very implicated. uncomfortable place to be. It's, it's, tough. Yeah. it's tough to be implicated. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. Christians, you know, Christians actually uh, should at least be able to recognize that because uh, we believe we've all been implicated in sin. So Exactly. Right. Maybe yeah. we should do that. We're uh, basically at time. Uh, this has okay. been a great conversation. I thank you for joining yeah. me. Thank and, you. Um, uh, I will, uh, I will certainly take some of these words. I, I appreciate Oaks. And in fact, when I saw the book, you may not remember, but I, I asked you if you had seen it. I sent you a message yeah. and you said that, no, you had because it was just published, yeah. but that you'd read some of them. So right. I thought, well, I need to get, I need to get, uh, you know, there's just too many books and not enough lifetime, isn't there? Exactly. Whole yeah. shelf of them back here that still have to be read. Yeah. I mean, if I had a second, <laughs> if I had a full second <laughs> lifetime available to me, it still wouldn't be enough time. Exactly. So, right. It's a good thing, though. It's a good thing. Then we're in conversation because, you know, what I read and you don't and you read and I don't. We can talk about it. So. Right. Very good. So we're going to do this again in a month. OK. Right? And we should talk That's about, right. you know, should, so tell, tell me what you think. Should we do one conversation solely on socialism and one on capitalism or should we do both in one? I think it's good for, to do a comparative. Yeah, I I, that's what I was thinking. I, that you know, why I, just talk socialism? Why we okay, why talk about why do we have what we have? Um, right. You know, I think it's fair to say. Tell me if you agree with this. Um, but you talked about capitalism being modern. You know, last couple hundred years, so right. we can't really put yeah. that back in the New Testament. Right. But it's true of socialism too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are the two. If, if and again, there's there's. It's actually probably better to say speak of capitalisms and socialism. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. But um, these are the two overarching economic systems, if I can use that term, uh, that we have been dealing with in the world, uh, particularly yeah. in the last century and a half. Yeah. So yeah. it would be good to kind of talk and compare and contrast and kind of see where we go with that. So that'll be our topic for August. 
Okay. Okay. That sounds great. Let's do that. All right, friends. Hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. This is uh, Faith Seeking Understanding, and we will see you soon. Uh, this will be available on videocast and podcast, and it's my plan uh, to post it uh, tomorrow on Thursday. Thursday, July, what that, July 8th. So, all right, Michael Cruz, thank you. Thank you. All right. Enjoyed the conversation. I did too. Everybody have a great day. Okay. Thank you. Now, let me. <laughs> I didn't say that I did. I, I, I'm expert in some things. I didn't say technology was one of my favorite.